Welcome to the Homeschool Loftcast, a podcast presented by the Homeschool Loft in De Pere, Wisconsin. Our goal at the Loft is to encourage parents who educate their children at home and let them know that they are both called to and empowered for the task of home-based education. At the Loft itself, we offer one-on-one consultations, book clubs and discussion groups, workshops and seminars, and a curriculum viewing library. Through the Loftcast, we extend our reach to encourage and bless homeschooling parents everywhere. Joining us today is Shay Sortwell, a state representative for the 2nd Assembly District in Wisconsin. Shay is a homeschool graduate and a father of six, all of whom are being homeschooled by his wife, Krista. Shay has been with the state legislature since 2018 and is a University of Wisconsin Green Bay graduate and a military veteran. Welcome, Shay. Uh, thank you for having me, Tina. Well, Shay, it's it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, I know you are an ally to homeschoolers across the state of Wisconsin, and you were homeschooled yourself. You're part of the growing cohort of second generation homeschoolers. So, um, you know, as Tina alluded to, you are involved in state politics and we'll get into that. But my first question is, um, you know, where and when were you homeschooled? <laughs> at home. <laughs> um, so let's see. But homeschoolers we, don't stay home, Shay. <laughs> that's true. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, we moved to Wisconsin right before my 16th birthday. Okay. Um, before that, uh, we lived in the state of Vermont. So we were homeschooled in Vermont. Hmm. And then uh, we finished up homeschooling here in Wisconsin. Okay. Okay. So, and this is probably like, oh, this is just a shot in the dark. Like what, the 1980s? For what? For when you were being homeschooled. Right? I was born in 1985, so oh that's a goodness. little early. A little early. <laughs> but at this point in time, the uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he thinks I'm really. I'm old going to. I'm going to leave well, the no, recording mature. studio he, now. You know, you, exactly. <laughs> you look mature, not okay. Old. <laughs> mature. So, so at this point in time, um, you know, I guess what was homeschooling like? Because you are a second generation homeschooler. Yeah, you know, really the the biggest biggest difference I see for the way that people respond to my children versus the way that. I was as, as a child where I was treated as a child. The biggest difference I guess we saw is, is homeschooling is kind of accepted as a, a viable alternative. Mm -hmm. When I was, when I was a kid and we'd go to the grocery store or something (laughs) almost without fail, you know, the cashier would ask, Oh, is school off today? Or was it a half day today? Or things like that. And we'd, if we said, Oh no, we're, we're homeschooled. You always kind of got this quizzical look and it was like, Oh, Oh, okay. <laughs> but now, um, when, when we go out to the grocery store or whatever, and our kids are with us, um, that doesn't happen nearly as often. It's like, Oh, Oh, that's really neat. Mm-hmm. And Oh, I wish I could have done that with my kids. And I wish I had the time or the ambition or, or whatever it is. It, it's simply an accepted alternative these days from what I could tell by and large. And I don't know if that's just because it's been around longer or if it's because it's expanded beyond just the kind of religious right. right. You know, at one time that really, you know, at one time it was either hippies or yes. religious right <laughs> homeschooled. And so kind of the considered generally speaking by a lot of people, you know, kind of these fringe society, but now yeah. there's a, just a whole lot of people that are choosing different kinds of uh, home-based educations, uh, whether it's traditional home schooling or whether it's in some states they have, uh, you know, these uh, micro schools or whether it's uh, online charter schools through the public school system, all these different home-based education 
ideas yeah. that are kind of, I think we've just kind of come into the mainstream. And I mean, so much so that, like I said, you, you even got these online charter schools through the public school systems. Mm-hmm. So even the public schools have to an extent embraced this general principle of you can receive an education outside of the walls of a traditional classroom. Right. 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 When you moved here from Vermont, so you were a teenager, did you notice any difference in the homeschool climate here at that time compared to Vermont? Uh, the climate, well, I mean, the law is very different. Yeah. Um, in in uh, Vermont, there was a couple different ways that you had to get uh, kind of prove that you were homeschooling and mm. that you were actually educating your kids. And the, the simplest way to do it over there um, was to take some sort of standardized test. So we took the Iowa tests okay. um, here in Wisconsin. Obviously, you don't have to do that, although I've administered Iowa or CAT tests for several students, uh, several students when there was like, uh, you know, um, broken families, husbands and wives divorced or whatever. And one spouse didn't agree with homeschooling. They wanted the kid tested or something. So I've done that a few times for people, but the law didn't require it. As far as coming out here though, even by by the time we got here, um, I I would say as far as the the climate goes, I I didn't notice a huge difference, but once again, I mean, I was turning 16. By the time I was 17, um, I was going to University of Wisconsin Green Bay. I started college when I was seventeen, wow. so we didn't have a whole lot of interaction with the homeschool community because yeah. I mean, yeah. it, basically a year, year and a half or so, and then I was in college. Right. So right. yeah, so I don't think I could give a fair answer for how the climate was twenty years ago when I graduated high school. So. Are you glad you were homeschooled? You know, reflecting back on it, uh, that's pretty impressive. You know, you went to college at age 17. You joined the military soon after. Looking back, what are your thoughts on your experience? You know, that's a difficult question for me to answer because um, I certainly think in in a lot of ways I did benefit certainly a lot more uh, from a from the perspective of the actual education and what you learned. I mean, studies just show over and over again, the homeschoolers just tend to be better, better educated than their public school or even private school counterparts. So I'm sure I did uh, well through that. I was never a big fan of schooling of any type. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I started, I started being homeschooled in third grade before that I was in public school. Mm-hmm. And I can't say I really cared for public school when I was in first, second or third grade. And I can't say I really cared all that much for for homeschooling once we moved there. So I'm not sure I'm a really a fair judge on that. I was never a big person for schooling. Sure. Sure. Oh, that's cool. So, so Shay, you know, walk us through. So you were homeschooled, um, you know, originally from Vermont, then you moved to Wisconsin and then what, then you joined the military. I actually joined after I graduated college. Okay. Oh, so college first and then military. Yeah. A lot of times yeah. it's the other way around. Yeah. So it was kind of interesting. So I, when I was going to college, trying to figure out what I was going to do at one point, I was actually thinking about getting a commission in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had applied for um, a program through the Marines. I actually ended up getting, uh, eventually there was two programs. I applied for one. I didn't get the, that one. Then I applied for a second one. I actually did get accepted into that one, but they didn't tell me anything for month after month, after month, after month, after month. And so I kind of gave up on it yeah. and I thought, well, may, I guess, you know, maybe they don't want me, whatever, mm-hmm. I guess. So I'll move on with my life. And that's actually when I transitioned really into doing a lot more stuff with politics. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, well, I guess the military thing's not going to happen. So I'm going to go ahead and go into politics. So I went into, po- so I worked into politics and the last couple of years of my uh, college days, I worked on a congressional campaign, worked on a gubernatorial campaign and a presidential campaign. Uh, some of those paid positions 
And then uh, I graduated in 2006. I would have graduated in summer of 2006. Mm-hmm. And in, in summer of 2006, for those political junkies out there, that was not <laughs> a very good year for us Republicans. <laughs> we were losing a lot of races across the country. Mm-hmm. And so there weren't a whole lot of positions out there for, you know, people trying to go into politics, whether it was elected positions or staff positions. Right. Um, so there just wasn't a whole lot available for us. So I, I continued to do camp, some campaign things and some other kind of odd jobs here and there for the for a couple of year, a year or two after that. Um through 2007 and 2008, um, kind of hoping to get to the next election and then hopefully Republicans will win and then I can get a <laughs> job somewhere. Well, 2008 wasn't any better. As a matter of fact, we, it got even worse. Probably worse, yep. <laughs> in, in 2008, we actually, the Republicans lost the assembly, the majority. Wow. Um, so that went even further down the wrong way. And so then I, at that point, I decided, well, I got to do something. And so at that point, I enlisted in the military instead, mm-hmm. which as I tell my officer friends now when they join um, I actually am kind of glad I enlisted rather than hmm. uh, joined as an officer, because the main difference between being an officer and being an enlisted individual is as an enlisted individual, you have to put up with the political correct crap that's running through <laughs> the military right now. As an officer, you're expected to push that. Oh, I remember right. in the in one of my drills that I was at, uh, the commander had had to give a briefing because we were they were going to start to allow uh, uh transitioning people mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. to participate in the, the physical fitness tests in their oh. declared yeah. gender yeah <laughs> and, and so he was doing the briefing explaining all this and it was really funny for me i didn't say much i mostly just sat there listening and i just yeah. listened to these other higher enlisted you know sergeants and staff sergeants and things just ripping on the commander mm about how horrible this was. And so I listened, it was really kind of amusing to watch because yeah. all these enlisted people were pushing back and screaming and holler about how, how this was terrible for our female soldiers. Yeah. yeah. And, but he, he, you know, he was the officer and he was pushing through oh. it. He was going to get through the briefing and then go and hi, hi, run and run to his office. Cause he was getting yelled at by yeah, every, all the yeah. enlisted personnel. <laughs> so that's the difference. And so, you know, being in the military right now, I, I can't even imagine it's, yeah. it's gotta be difficult. And I, I just, Knowing how the military works, I think it's, I just can't imagine being easier as an officer. It's, I, to me, yeah. it's got to be worse because you are expected to push the stuff. You, you're not allowed to be the grumbler. Yeah, the, right. the NCOs and the, and the enlisted, they, they're allowed to grumble. That's, yeah. that's kind of like one of their jobs is to grumble <laughs> at what the command is doing. That's funny. So, so at what point did you meet Krista in all of this? I met her in college. Okay. All I right. met her in college. Um, my at the end of my junior year. Okay. Um. So what, what would that have been? I guess uh, two thousand five. Okay. I would have it was spring of two thousand five. I met her then. Um. And then she had another. She graduated about a year a year or so after me. Okay. But that's that's how we met. And then yeah. uh, we. So she got, had to be a military wife for a while. For a little while, and and then and but worse than that was the the uncertainty of the political world. I'll tell you, <laughs> trying to get into politics. Um. It can be a bizarrely complicated life because if you want to get into an elected position, um, you know, for city councils or whatever, I mean, you've got the 
I mean, you got you're spending a lot of time getting elected in the first yeah. place. And then uh, there's all the volunteering for everybody else, because unless you're some people who, <clears throat> you know, can spend millions of dollars and just buy an election, um, <laughs> un- unless you're that person, you have to take the time to create the networks and go out and meet people. And it's not just your own constituents, but it's making political connections with people. So you have donors and things to help you out and all it, it's, it's a really complicated process. And then you know, some, sometimes the campaigns you're working on lose. Right. I mean, half the time somebody's losing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hopefully it's not your person, but somebody yeah, but is losing every time. it's going to be at some point, right? I mean, you don't win everything. At, so, at, some, yeah. at some point, probably, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's, that's tough too. But, yeah. uh, not, and, you know, and, you know, when, when somebody runs for office, most of the time it's, it's, uh, the family's just as much a part of that as anybody else. Cause we're all going to the parades and we're going to the community events and yeah. let's go hand out some Packer Badger schedules for the people who listen, who are not from Wisconsin. The <laughs> Packers are a big deal here. <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of political candidates will put the, the, the Green Bay Packers football schedule on flyers and hand that out. And yep. people will take your political flyers <laughs> because it's got the Packers schedule on it. <laughs> but you do what works, right? I mean, you that's do what, what works. Yeah. If somebody's willing to hold on to your campaign literature, it's a win. Exactly. <laughs> most of the people look at, oh, campaign literature, they throw it away. But if it's got the Packers schedule on it, you're good to go. <laughs> so at what point, Shay, did you transition from working on campaigns to you're running in campaigns. And what was your first race? My first race was in 2008. My first race was in 2008 running for Green Bay City Council. Uh, there was an open seat. And uh, so Green Bay City, Green, uh, City of Green Bay has, tw- uh, at least at the time, mm-hmm. had 12 aldermen districts representing roughly speak about 9,000 people a district. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ran in 2008 and got my clock cleaned. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, because that was 2008, like you said. Right? Well, it was, it was 2008, yeah. but that would have been a spring election. Okay. Um, okay. But, you know, what I learned from that is, you know, don't take any election for granted. Mm-hmm. Don't ever think you've actually done enough work. Have a healthy paranoia that you're going to lose <laughs> and keep working for that next door. Because, you know, just like so many other things in life, uh, a campaign, eh, a lot of it, a lot of the, your success is based off of how hard you're willing to work. So I had gone through that district. I think it was a while ago now, but if I remember correctly in 2008, when I ran against a man, um, the gentleman's name was Dan, when I ran against Dan in 2008 in, in this open seat, um, which means there's no incumbent for those who don't know, there's no incumbent. He was an open seat. So both of us were running unknown. And I think I went through the entire district myself one time. I knocked on every voting household, which was about 800 or so doors. Okay. Um, low turnout in spring elections. And, but he spent a lot of money. Mm. And so my going door to door one time apparently didn't work. <laughs> so like I was telling you before, um, we were talking before I ran against the same guy two years later mm-hmm. and I knocked on every voting household four times myself personally. Ooh. We spent a fair amount more money, although not a ton where he still had more money than me. Um, but a fair amount more money. And then my, you know, my friends and family also went through and knocked on doors in addition to the four times that I knocked in every voting door. Wow. And in a, this is a two to one Democrat district. Wow. And when all was said and done, uh, we won that by six votes. So <laughs> it took a lot, but it was, like I said, it's a two to one Democrat district. I'm a conservative Republican. And while it's not a partisan race, people would ask you, are you Republican or Democrat? I usually didn't answer that question directly <laughs> yeah. because I, did, I wanted to get, because these are, these were working class 
uh, working class people who, you know, generally speaking, actually kind of conservative minded. Yeah. yeah. And so I would always kind of just talk about, well, you know, I'm a conservative and I, I want to spend within our means and this kind right. of stuff. You want to get behind the ideas. So labels, I would talk about the ideas right? more than the party, but yeah. I would say, I'd usually wrap it up with, well, you know, and given the fact of how the Democrats spend money these days, you know, if you're going to put me in a party, I guess I'm Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd always start with the issues before I'd answer the direct question. So I have to ask, because, you know, this is a trend in politics is a lot of folks, especially at a local level, will run one or multiple times and then they'll lose one or multiple times before they win the seat thereafter. So do you think that like is is brand awareness a thing in politics? Like did running and losing the first time help you the second time? Hmm. Um, it, it is possible, but I mean... I, I think, I think it mostly helped me because I was, I put in so much more work the second time. Right. Um, okay. okay. Having run in the past can be of benefit sometimes, but you've got to be careful because you can start to get branded as the perennial loser candidate. Right. And then it was like, Oh, well, you know, he's going to lose again. You know, yeah. we actually just had that. And I, hopefully he doesn't listen to this podcast because I don't, I'm not, I'm not trying to bash him or anything, but there was a guy that ran for secretary of state in this primary okay. mm-hmm. and, and he's a nice guy. I have nothing against him personally, but it's like the fifth or sixth time he's run for something. Uh, and so, you know, I, part of why he probably lost yeah. is because he's thought of as the person who always loses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and he actually did halfway decent in the primary because it was a statewide race this time, but you know, you just, you got to be careful because, but sometimes, sometimes you can tee it up okay. and, and you know, you start to get known and then, you know, next time around you can give it another go. Mm-hmm. Um, but other times people have kind of moved on. It's like, and I'll tell you that the memory in politics mm-hmm. is much shorter than you think. Okay. I was actually surprised. I was helping out actually right now, the Lieutenant governor candidate for Wisconsin, Roger Roth. Mm-hmm. Um, I was helping him run for Congress several years back, back in, I think it was 2010, if I remember correctly. And one of the ways that we were trying to kind of build on name ID was the fact that his uncle had previously held that seat, like 15 years prior or something like that. That would be Toby Roth. Uh So if you ever heard of Roth IRAs, Oh yeah. That was Toby Roth's bill. Mm. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's where the Roth IRAs come from. And so we, I was knocking doors, talking to people and I'd bring that up and people would just kind of look at me blankly, even though it hadn't Mm -hmm. been that long. Like I said, it'd been like 15 years. Now, if I said Roth IRA, you know, a light bulb would kind of go off in their head. But if I said Toby Roth, they'd be like, Oh, what? I don't know. (laughs) And I'm not talking about like, you know, 20, 20 year old people who obviously were five when Toby was in, (laughs) but you know, even like 15, 16, 70 year old people, Memories are just very, very short when it comes to politics. And so okay. you, you got to in some way stay relevant. That's like, you know, wow. here with Rebecca Clayfish just lost her primary for, for governor. Mm. Um, I, I don't know what her plans are, yeah. but if she doesn't find some way to stay relevant, you know, she's not going to be able to run for anything against really successfully. Yeah. She mm-hmm. already suffered a little bit from it because it's been four years since Scott Walker and, and her were in office. Right. And so that's part of why part of why she couldn't seal the deal is it was four years and four years in politics is a long time. And she wasn't doing anything publicly during that time. Not as much as would have been beneficial to her to keep in the public eye. Yeah. Yeah. So the insiders kind of still knew what was going on and knew she was kind of around and kind of prepping for her race. Right. Um, But in the public eye, people didn't see her in the public eye. So you won your Green Bay City Council seat in 2010, right? Yes. Okay. And then at what point did you transition to state legislator? Um, uh, well, 
I actually, I actually ran in 2014 in, in that same district to that same area in green Bay as an independent. I won't go into all the mess that that was. (laughs) Sure. Um, but when I actually, then I ran and that was the 90th assembly district. I ran in the second assembly district where I live now, uh, in 2018. So that would have been eight years later. Okay. And, you know, as far as, um, trying using that as a benefit. I'm not sure it was much of a benefit because it wasn't the same constituency at all. And it was just, I mean, having been involved in politics, some people knew me, but, and, and when I ran, I was also on my local town board at the time too. So when I moved out to the country, then I, I joined my town of Gibson town of 1300 people. Okay. I joined my town board out there. So there was a little bit of that, but mostly it was just, I'm telling you, I was fighting an uphill battle because my primary opponent was on the De Pere city council. Uh, okay. And so there was a fair number of people in De Pere, which is the largest municipality in my district, um, who knew him. And so he had the advantage from that standpoint, it was just outworking him. And really yeah. just, I'm telling you, anyone who wants to work in politics, if you want to be successful, the number one thing you can do to win is knock on doors. Yeah. Knocking wins elections. It's that simple. Why did you want to be in the Wisconsin state legislature? <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, there are days I ask myself that <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's funny. I always expected, you know, I'm a pretty conservative guy. Um, I always expected to be attacked from the left. I, I knew that was going to happen because, um, you know, the left doesn't like conservatives. Right. Uh, what surprised me a little bit is eventually I started getting attacked from people on the right. Oh, as not being conservative enough, even though I, <laughs> even though I've been scored as the most conservative legislator in the state of Wisconsin. Yeah. I just like to point that out. The most conservative <laughs> yeah. legislator, but it's and not yet, enough. <laughs> and yet it's not enough. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, and I already got marked down a couple points, even though there was things that, because I'm kind of a libertarian. And so there's some things that automatically marked me down and I could have, so I would have been higher otherwise, but anyways, um, you know, it's something I always wanted to do when I, when we got married, I told Krista, then 10 years, and it was actually almost exactly 10 years, yeah. uh, I wanted to run for the assembly. Oh. And I wanted to be in the assembly for a couple of reasons. But the main reason is states are supposed under the Constitution are supposed to be the vehicle, are supposed to be the, the position that has the power. They're supposed yes. to be the one yeah. that actually makes the decisions and runs the country. It's not supposed to be the Congress and, and nothing against your local city councils and things, but even those are, are supposed to be secondary to the state. It's supposed to be the state that runs things. And we need to try to reclaim, you know, our, our power for the federal government one. And two, we, we actually need people in office who don't just give lip service to the constitution. Don't just give lip service to our, our true conservative limited government principles, but actually live up to it. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes, you know, sometimes I have, I've had to vote against bills that everybody else was voting for because I looked at it and said, well, no, that's, that is not a small government. Yeah. Uh, that's not a small government bill. I have, and you know, some, sometimes people have accused me then of, well, I'm not a real Republican because I, I support things like, you know, not, not to upset all the homeschoolers listen here and listening <laughs> here, but I'm libertarian. So, you know, I, I support things like marijuana reform. Well, the hippies like that. Well, the hippies like that. <laughs> the unschoolers. Yes. Yes. The, the unschoolers. unschoolers. Bring the unschoolers in. Well, and, and a lot of people want it for medical purposes or whatever else, but I actually look at it and, you know, maybe it's because I'm homeschooled or whatever, but I actually know the history behind all of this. Yeah. And I know that the history behind marijuana prohibition actually comes down to this idea 
in the early 1900s that we, that, that it was an idea from the progressives, both in the Republican party and the Democrat party at the time, yes. that we could somehow solve all of society's ills if we would just pass certain laws to do accomplish something. It, it's actually against the, the principles that this country was founded on, which is that people have the ability to make decisions for their own personal lives and they have to suffer the consequences that happen from the, from those decisions. And so, and the idea that, you know, the only way that we can actually solve, truly solve the ills of our society is reliance on God. But, but, but the progressives replaced God with the government. Yep. And it continues to this day in some aspects in both political parties yes. right. on the Democrats. It's ridiculously obvious because they do it almost constantly. <laughs> but even the Republicans, I, I had a, I had a, a debate with a local radio host here. I went and we had a mm. forum and he, he wanted to go off into this other stuff. And, and I looked at him and I said, well, you're the one that's pushing big government. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he, he was, he wanted to talk about taxes and talk about how, why would you support this to raise taxes? I'm like, I don't support, I don't support any kind of legalization to raise taxes. I don't, I don't want to tax anything in particular. Mm-hmm. Now, if you, if you legalize, I guess I don't care too much if that's taxed more than anything else, but, <laughs> but I, I, this has nothing to do with tax policy to me. It has to do with the fact that government, according to the declaration of independence is this, is, It says right in the Declaration of Independence that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. That is its purpose. And you can't point to this issue and say that somehow we're protecting rights Mm -hmm. by a straight up prohibition. Now you want to talk about driving under the influence and all that kind of stuff. Those are different issues that we have to, we would have to try to deal with, but you can't just say that because I think it's bad, Mm -hmm. we should make it illegal. You know, we, we, this country existed just fine for over a hundred years without it being illegal. Right. And it's only gotten worse, worse since we decided that government can solve our problems. Yeah. We need to get away from the fact that government can solve our problems. It's never going to happen. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> right. Right. No. So, so Shay, you know, th- this has been great. And I feel as though listeners have kind of gotten a crash course into local politics, which is great. <laughs> and state politics. And state politics. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, do you, like honest, honest to goodness, do you recommend that let's say homeschoolers in particular, because that's our audience get into, you know, politics at a local level? I would say I would highly encourage homeschoolers to get back into politics because I will tell you hmm. my generation okay. was highly involved in politics. Yeah. When, when, when I, so I'm 37 years old, just had my birthday a few, uh, yes, happy a couple birthday. weeks ago, thank you, <laughs> a few days ago. Um, when I was, when I was homeschooling 20, over 20 years ago here, yeah. oh boy, I feel old, old when I say that, but <laughs> I was being homeschooled over 20 years ago. We were actually very involved politically yeah, and that's kind of gone by the wayside. Now, I don't know if once again, it's because we've expanded what homeschooling is. And so there's a lot more people in it. And so we're not kind of this persecuted, almost cons- persecuted class. And so we don't right. really feel yeah. d- that we have to be that defensive. I- I'm not sure what it is, but absolutely we should be involved in politics um, because despite what people think politics affects like every aspect of our lives. I mean, yeah. as simple as the, you, you want to get a license to be, to be a, a dentist in Wisconsin yeah. or anywhere or any other state, that, that's a government license. Right. And we decide what the regulations are on that. And so whatever you want to go into, I mean, politics permeates everything. Now I know a lot of people like to stick their head in the sand and kind of pretend that it doesn't 
affect us. And if I just ignore it, it'll leave me alone. But that is so far from the truth. And if you're not involved, well, then other people are making your decisions for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, so few people are involved in politics, generally speaking, that when you do get involved, your impact is so much more than you would ever think possible. Like I said, I ran in a two to one Democrat district for city council in Green Bay. And I, I did it mostly on my own. I'm not saying my, obviously my wife helped me and fa some family and friends helped me, mm -hmm. but most of the work was just me. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was able to win that race by just putting in the work. I mean, so many campaigns at, at different levels, especially the lower levels. You know, if you want to go volunteer for a presidential campaign, go knock your socks off. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. But I will tell you the, the lower level races, people don't help them out most of the time yeah. right. for state, even state assembly. Most of the time it's the, it's the candidate and his family doing really? most of the work. Wow. And I know sometimes, once again, you have some friends and stuff that'll help you out. But, you know, after your first election, that tends to fade away a lot because they're like, well, you're elected now. You can do this on your and own. The state party can only help you so much. right? Well, the state party could do a bunch, but, you know, they have their priorities. Right. Um, and it's not always the candidate you like the best. Right. Um, and, and their priorities are either, you know, candidates that they think are most in jeopardy or, or if they yeah. think that they're going to, the, there's a seat they can pick off if you're talking assembly level. And in all honesty, most of their money is spent on the statewide races. I mean, here in Wisconsin, they're expecting at least $50 million for the, for the governor's race. Wow. Probably pushing a hundred million for the Senate race. Wow. It's good. These, these will probably be two of the most expensive races in the country here in Wisconsin. Wow. So, um, so your assembly seat <clears throat> is not a priority. So my assembly seat <laughs> is not going to be a priority for them, yeah. uh, which means it's going to come. That's, that's why actually I worked so hard to try to raise as much money as I could. Cause you had to fundraise for every race has raised as much money as I could last year, yeah. because I yeah. knew that, you know, coming into this year, there's just not going to be a lot of money available from some of the donors that are out there. They're giving, going to be giving all their money to, well, I guess, Tim Michaels, now that he won the primary sure, or Ron Johnson for, for Senate. And so, um, you know, and, and right now I don't have as much as I'd like because I saw my Democrat opponent starting to raise money. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, uh, yeah, the, the impact you can have, you don't need money uh, to, uh, to be highly impactful uh, yeah. at the, even the state assembly and state Senate levels. If you got a few hours to knock on doors, if you, if you could do a couple hours a week, you'd be doing a hundred times more than almost, than mo most people. Yeah. Well, Tina, a mutual friend of ours, Drew Kerstetter, we ought to have him yes. on. Oh yeah. You know, here's a man who, uh, you know, just, uh, your average Joe everyday guy. And what, he's he runs about 23 for, years old. 23 at this point. runs yeah. for yeah. state assembly. With the uh, help of Rebecca Clayfish, I guess that's what he told me. So, you know, in a homeschool graduate, so there's yeah, a plug yeah. for him, you know, so it's, it's good to hear that. Yeah. And hopefully he'll do it again. So. I hope so. Uh, Shay, you made waves in 2021 in the homeschool community in Wisconsin because you introduced a bill about micro schooling. Mm. <laughs> What is micro schooling and why was it such a kerfuffle over it? <laughs> well, um, so we're going to have to go in a little bit into what current law is in Wisconsin and how that might be different from 
other audience members that may hear right. this. Because microschooling is legal in some states already and not, yeah. a, not on the radar right. screen so, in other so, states. So in, in, around the country, homeschooling, let's just talk homeschooling for a second, which technically Wisconsin doesn't even technically have homeschooling. We're home-based education. Yeah. Pri- what is it? Private home-based home education. Home-based private education. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So technically that's what it is. <clears throat> and I actually talked to the guy who wrote the law back in the day. And he explained to me why he named it that. Yes. Because uh, he actually wrote it that way in the law. It was really kind of interesting. But anyways, um, so around the country, homeschooling takes on different uh, forms. Yes. And in some states, you are allowed to work more cooperatively with other individuals away from private schools and public schools and still be following the laws that are in place in those states. And so that you can, um, you know, everyone's heard of co-ops and yep. things, right? Everyone's heard of right. co-ops for doing, for doing education. Well, here in Wisconsin, you we have co-ops, but really you can try to fudge it a little bit, but really under the law, anything that is done cooperatively outside of the primary educator is really not supposed to be included under the hours that are required under Wisconsin law as education. Mm-hmm. I, no one really checks on anything. Well, no one really checks yeah. on anything, but you know, there's always the chance that something happens. And so if that's all, if you really had a cooperative, that, that's all you did all the yeah. time. And anyone ever asked about it, right? you know, then you'd have an issue. And that's right. basically, that's what a micro school is. A micro school is basically a co-op that happens basically all the time. Yeah. Instead of just like half a day a week, it's right. full it's, time. You know, four right. days a week, five days a week, something like that. Or there are different variations on it. So that's already legal in many states. And once again, there's different forms of it. But the, basically the idea of a micro school is to allow people who don't want to go into a f- more formal private school Mm -hmm. or public school or, and they don't want to kind of go on, just do it all on their own in, in, in homeschooling, traditional homeschooling. And so they will work instead more cooperatively. And so it's typically a fairly small group of people. Um, I've seen some uh, in some States can be up to actually a fairly large number in my view, like a hundred people. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I think that's at that point, you're kind of pushing private school in my view, but that's just, that's just my opinion on it. <clears throat> so anyways, when I was looking at Wisconsin, I, I, I noticed that there was kind of a gap in the law yeah. for the for the options that Wisconsin families had versus what people in some other states have. And so the first idea I had is, OK, can we do something about the homeschool law to simply allow for multiple families to work together in a larger group rather than just a single family unit? Mm-hmm. And so I had contacted one of the uh, primary uh, homeschool advocacy groups here in the state of Wisconsin. They used to be called the uh, the homeschool, uh, the Wisconsin Parenting Association. They're now called the Wisconsin Homeschool Parenting Association. But I had contacted them with that idea, basically saying, hey, what do you think about this idea? Other states do this already. Can we just expand the definition of homeschooling to simply include other families? They were not big fans of that idea. No. Um, and so. <laughs> and I kind of get it because if you actually mess with the language of the homeschool law mm-hmm. in one way, it could be easily messed with in other ways. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so that, so that was basically their position. And so what they had said to me is, well, if, if you want to do that, why don't you just make it a separate law? Yeah. So I said, I said, well, I think you're wrong, but <laughs> I, fine. I will do, I will write it that way. Sure. Um, and so that's what I did. I, I wrote a law instead that instead of uh, redefining homeschooling to be more expansive, I instead created a new form of schooling, namely Microschooling, yep. And for a small group of families, I think as it was finally amended in the final version of it, I think it was up to 10 families and mm. up to 
I want to say 25 kids under the, under the, under the final definition. Cause there was oh, some, okay. there was some going back and forth and there was actually a family in uh, Sun Prairie, which is a suburb of Madison yeah. that had approached me and said, Hey, we're, we're actually kind of doing this already kind of under the, <laughs> under the radar. Well, a lot um, of people started doing and, it during the pandemic. Right. right? And, and, yeah. we ha- and we have like eight families that are involved in yeah. this. Could we expand this a little bit to try okay. to help yeah. us out with this? Because yeah. they were going to, I won't go into all their legal issues for trying yeah. to do, accomplish what they were trying to accomplish. <clears throat> um, but anyways, so when all was said and done, I think it was 25 kids up to 25 kids and up to 10 families. Okay. And so, and that was, and I, so what I did was I took the homeschool law and I basically copied and pasted it. Right. And then, and then made yeah. those changes that I had wanted to in the original homeschool law yeah. and made those changes over here. So there really was yeah. targeting just multiple families. Right. And so theoretically, if you, uh, if you want to do a, uh, do a micro school, Actually, I changed it. It was not a micro school in the final version of the bill, <laughs> because once again, you didn't want to use the word school. And that goes yes. into ri- issues related to homeschooling back in the day and why we don't call it homeschooling in Wisconsin, yeah. uh, li- legal issues. So I, we changed it to microeducation pod. Okay. And, and uh, we, so we called it the microeducation pod bill and uh, we got it through the assembly, got it through the Senate, took some, I had to make some compromises, things I didn't want to change in it. Um, but we got it there, got it to the governor's desk and um, somebody on the governor's staff told him to veto because he doesn't make any of his own decisions, but, <laughs> yeah. but he, unfortunately he vetoed the bill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's a whole separate legal category. It is distinct from homeschooling. Yeah. And we had the homeschool legal defense association look at it. In fact, okay. the oh, homeschool, wonderful. yeah, the homeschool legal defense association looked at it and they took a neutral position on the bill mm-hmm. and the, re- and we asked them why, because it's like, well, is, is this good, bad or, you know, right, what, right. Why, why a neutral position? And their response was because it's not homeschooling. Yes. Which is the <laughs> issue, right? Right. So, my so ma- we protected I, homeschooling, didn't change it at all. Yes. And so HSLDA looked at it and said, oh, well, you're not actually changing homeschooling, so we have no position on it. Yeah. So HSLDA, the lawyers, right. <laughs> yeah. realize the truth of it. Right. So why are some, and I would say a small number of homeschoolers in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. why are they so vehemently opposed to it? I support it. I came down and testified in Madison for it, which put a target on my back, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> well, I, I believe I, I believe two things about that. One, I should also mention that Marv Munyon, for anyone who, yes. in Wisconsin who doesn't know, Marv Munyon was one of the primary authors of the homeschool law back in the 80s. 80s. Marv Munyon and Larry Casey. Yes, Marv Munyon. And so he, he came in uh, to talk with me about it. And we made a couple of changes based off of his recommendations, including calling it education pods and not not micro schools. So that was one of the changes we made. And so I think one of the problems was the fact that we approached, you know, the, the, the Wisconsin parenting association, homeschool parenting association originally. And so they already kind of were thinking like we're doing the same thing. And somehow, so somehow that's a threat to, to, to it's, it's really kind of bizarre. And I will tell you though, well, I also know who is their legal, who is their legal advisor, their, 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 um, what you might call it. Um, the legislate, there's legislative director, the person who actually watches legislation for them. Yeah. And let me just say, she might be a homeschooler. I, as far as I know, she must be. Yeah. Um, but she's nowhere close to a conservative. Yeah. Mm. Um, and as a matter of fact, if you if you listened to her testimony uh, during the bill, during the public hearing that Tina was at, and then another one later, um, her testimony, you could have used almost all of her arguments against homeschooling. Mm. 
-hmm. It was all these arguments about, well, what about safety and what about oversight and what about, you know, making sure people or kids are learning and all this kind of stuff. And and come to find out, she actually signed the, the Walker recall petition. I looked her up and I found out that sure enough, she, I mean, that's the gift that keeps on giving by the way. (laughs) So for people who don't know, Scott, governor, Scott Walker, Republican from Wisconsin, uh, the governor, former governor, uh, he was recalled several years ago and uh, that list is public and you can search it online. And so it's, it's really kind of, find out it, we can find out who, yeah. who really stands in what position sometimes. Ah, and so, yeah. so we have that. And so I looked at that and said, well, that explains where she's coming from. She's yeah. not coming from it from a true small government standpoint. Right. She might be coming at it from the perspective I want to protect my little castle here, yeah. but not from that larger perspective of actually helping people get more educational choices and having more freedom to do different things. Right. Which is why I support it because mm-hmm. it's another new option and why not give parents more options? Right. So can I just ask you guys, and I know Tina, you're, you're savvy In on the your bill youth, too. Noah. Right? So, <laughs> and, and forgive my ignorance, but what's the difference between, you know, the microeducation pod and a co-op? The main difference is that you can actually, so Wisconsin law is you have to do a certain number of hours per year towards, right. towards homeschool. What is it? 875 or something. 875 or something, right? You're yeah. a homeschool dad. You should know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if, if you're awake, you're learning, right? Yeah. Well, exactly. that is true too, right? <laughs> exactly. So... Uh, and so if you're just, but by current law, you're really not allowed to count the co-op hours right now as part of that 875 hours. Not really. Even though we don't have to count. Even though you, <laughs> even though you don't really have to count per se, but if somehow they were ever going to try to challenge things gotcha. and it could be a mess sometimes when sometimes legal issues do arise, right. especially if you have like spouses disagreeing on things right. that can really create oh, a legal sure. mess. Um, or anyways, so as far as how that works out in practicality, if, if it's a typical co-op in Wisconsin, at least it's not all the time. It's a once a week thing or a once a month right. thing. Sometimes it's for a specific class, like, I don't yeah. know, creative writing or, or physics or whatever, something people don't feel comfortable teaching themselves. Yeah. Things like that. Just the and, occasional and actual, thing. It's no big deal. Right. right? And, and so, and because you spend so much time doing all the other things, you don't even have to worry about counting that towards hours anyways, yeah. because it, it's just, it, it's, you do so much time teaching in general. You don't have to worry about, oh my goodness, I need to make sure I include these hours. But a micro school or a micro education pod would theoretically be a, a co-op that basically operates all the time. And yeah, so right. you're, you're meeting together daily yeah. and it's, it's basically to an extent, it's no, it's not a whole lot different from a, just a very small private school. Right. The, right. the, the main difference between it and a regular private school is you avoid a number of regulations that could be fairly burdensome for right. a small, a, a, school that's starting out. So I've actually pointed out that I think this could be two different types of paths that a micro school could follow. One, it could just be a number of people getting together and they want to do this either, you know, because they want to just work cooperatively. That's option number one, you know, a couple of homeschoolers or whatever get together. Hey, we want to do this all together. Two, it could be better for working parents because maybe you don't really have the option of, um, you, you know, you don't really feel comfortable because of your work schedules or whatever with homeschooling your kids full time, but maybe you always have Fridays off. And so you'd be Fridays at the Smith's and Tuesdays at the right. Joneses and whatever, mm-hmm. since you can trade off, or it could be, you know, people getting together, you know, half a dozen families getting together and hiring a private tutor and paying right. that person to teach their kids. Yeah. You can do that. 
or it could be, it could be the start of a private school. So a private school could start off as a micro education pod. And once they get enough people together and it seems to be working well, now let's see about transitioning to a, a real full-time private school. Um, and people, people have challenged me on that and said, well, what kind of regulations are you talking about? There's no regulations law. Basically you register. Well, Mm -hmm. that's true, except you're, you're missing all the, all the zoning regulations and things that come down at the local level. Fire marshal things. Fire marshals and making sure you have, you know, handicap access, which, you know, if you don't have a handicapped kid in your dozen kids at your thing. Why would you need that? Right. Right. Or sprinkler systems and all these other things that, that come into play. And that was what the family in Sun Prairie was dealing with yes. is they, they had these kids and, you know, they were registering as a private school to get around to be able to at least teach them. But then they were starting to talk about, you know, you need a drop off zone for the kids, mm. for the parents when they're dropping these kids off and everything. Oh my <laughs> so, gosh. And so there actually is a lot of stuff that you wouldn't expect, because yeah. it's not directly in right. the schooling law necessarily. Right. It's in these subsidiary regulatory, sometimes in the regulations and sometimes yeah. it's in the zoning things, even from, you okay. know, the villages and the towns and right. all this kind of stuff. But if it's, if you're straight up just following the uh, homeschool law, none of that applies because, you know, you, you avoid all those regulations. Right. That makes lots of sense. So as you said, Tina, this sounds like yet another option for homeschoolers to pool their resources. But they would become a different thing legally, right? If you're in a pod, you're not a homeschooler. Yeah. I actually, I actually kind of wondered about that because yeah, yeah, the way we had written up is they would have to register with the state, just like any other school or homeschooler. I have all those people register their enrollment with different forms. And so they would have to develop a new form for these educate micro education pods. And I was actually curious, you know, if we ever get this to go through, I'll be really curious what some homeschooling groups do with these families. Yeah. Because Mm. some, you know, some of them are very particular about, okay, you must be, have filled out the PI 1206. (laughs) If you're not a PI 1206, you're not a homeschooler, which is true. Although technically you're not a homeschooler at all because it doesn't exist. Anyways, (laughs) uh, private, private home-based education. Um, But, you know, for me, I mean, I would still consider that broadly speaking a, right. a homeschooling. But once again, it kind of depends on how you're, you're working right. it because yeah. it could be really families working together. Yeah. And I see that much more as kind of a homeschool idea. Yeah. It could be some, you know, half a dozen families hiring, um, you know, a tutor. And then I don't really see that as much as a homeschooler. Right. So and much that's more of a private school. But I, so right. I, if we ever right. do get it to go through, I will be really curious to yeah. see what some of the homes, how some of the homeschool groups respond to that new yeah. educational option. If they allow those people to participate in the homeschool activities or not, yeah. I, I'm generally of the view that, you know, we should be welcoming of people, even if they're not following quite our path, but you know, it is what it is. The, it's, it's up to that group, yeah. I suppose. What's the status of the bill now? Well, right now it's been vetoed. <laughs> um, and so we are in between legislative sessions right now. We will bring it back next session. We will see what governor we're, de- we're dealing with. If we have the mm-hmm. same governor, well, <laughs> if, it, if we get all, get it all the way through, we may or may not even push it all the way through if we know it's going to get vetoed again. Yeah. Um, 
We'll see. Uh, if Republican, the Republicans win the governorship here in Wisconsin, which would be Tim Michaels won the primary. So if Tim Michaels wins the governor's race, um, then we'll have to kind of figure out where he is on the bill. And I, we were talking before the podcast began. I really don't know. I know where his primary contender was on the bill and I know she would have signed it. I don't know about Tim Michaels. I am hopeful he would be open to it. And I, I got to think if <clears throat> the Republican legislature passed it, um, I think he would be really hard pressed to veto the bill. Yeah. My bigger concern actually was, would be, I expect now I haven't seen it because I've always, whenever I've been in the legislature at this point, I've always had a Democrat governor. So I've never yeah. seen them. Yeah. I've never seen the inner workings when I've, when we've had a Republican governor, yeah. I've always seen it from the outside because I got elected the same election year Scott Walker lost. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, but from my understanding, there's a lot more cooperation between the governor's office and the legislature because the governor, you know, doesn't necessarily want to veto certain bills yeah. because, you know, it might upset some people you know, or even sign certain bills because it might upset certain people. And unlike now where the Republicans are more than happy to send a bill to the governor that he feels forced to veto and make him look bad, <laughs> um, you know, they're going to be less interested in doing that if a Republican's in the, in the, in the governor's mansion. Yeah, yeah. And so that, that would be my big question is if he doesn't want it, my guess is it doesn't get through the legislature, uh -huh. okay. but I don't know. He, yeah. he might be open to it. Maybe he's very open to it. I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, I know he didn't send his kids to public school. He sent it into private school. Okay. So at very least he's open to some educational choices. I just okay. don't know if he's open to that or not. Hmm. I mean, one of the biggest reasons for this bill is the idea that sometimes families have more limited resources and that gives them more limited choices, right. either because both parents have to work for financial reasons or, you know, maybe it's a single parent and they have to work. And so that's difficult to homeschool. Not that you can't do it, but it's very difficult to do so or other things. And, you know, nothing against his success, but he's from a very different economic <laughs> uh, status than, than I am. Um, you know, he has, he's literally a millionaire. Mm -hmm. So he, I don't know how much he's going to understand that issue or not. I just yeah. don't know. Yeah. That'll be interesting for sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. So if you, if you like the bill, if, <laughs> if, if Michael's wins, you know, make sure we y'all give a call to Michael's office to at very least get him to a neutral position to yeah. make, make, and find out where he is on it. Because right. if he's okay with it, then I expect the bill will pass again and we'll get it signed into law. If he's not okay with it, I expect it will die quietly. And if you find out that it dies quietly, it's, it'll be because a governor Michaels doesn't want it. Okay. Well, yeah. that's good to know. Right. <laughs> well, Sh well, Shay, you know, and I'm sure Tina, you could attest to this too. People are always shocked when they talk to homeschoolers or homeschooling families to learn that homeschooling, um, you know, of course, homeschooling has been around, you know, forever. It's how people used to educate their kids. But really, in terms of like a, a legislative perspective, homeschooling is fairly new. Right. Um, perhaps like 40 years, 40 years or so. Uh, and people are blown away by the popularity of homeschooling. I know COVID shook a lot of things up. Homeschooling is mainstream. You know, you don't yeah. get asked so much. Why aren't you in school when you take your kid to the grocery store? But, you know, being grateful for that, are there any current or impending threats, uh, you know, with regard to homeschooling in the state of Wisconsin? I, I would say yes, um, but it's very under the radar. And, you know, it, it's the same issue we're dealing with nationally on policy in general. Yeah. People think if there's nothing happening right now, nothing's ever going to happen. 
You know, one of the arguments I've heard against this microschool bill Mm -hmm. is, hey, this law, this homeschool law has been in place since the 80s. um, And because it's been around since the 80s um, and and nobody's ruined it, let's not touch it because, you know, if if we, you know, because that gives it some sort of credibility having been around Mm. for, whether that be now 40-ish years. Yeah. So for 40 ish years, it's been around. And so, you know, that gives it credibility. So e- even if the Democrats ever get the majority, they're not going to want to mess with it. Mm. That is naive in the extreme. Yes. Uh, if the Democrats ever get universal control of the legislature and governor's race, they will absolutely change it. Now, I'm not saying they would eliminate it necessarily, but I guarantee they would put more burdens on it, maybe testing requirements or some other things. I, I just know that they will do so. Furthermore, I would like to point out a, uh, I would I would like to point out an example of how flawed that whole it's an old law so it's safe is. <laughs> Let's talk about abortion for a second here. Right <laughs> here, here. So in the United States, obviously we had that Supreme Court case that yep. overruled Roe v. Wade. What that did was it returned the issue back to all the respective states. So Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, all the fifty states. All of them now get to determine what their laws are for abortion in their respective states. Here in Wisconsin, we still have a law on the books from 1849, the year after we became a state that outlaws most abortions. It doesn't eliminate all of them, but uh, eliminates most of them. One of the arguments I've been hearing very regularly from the pro-abortion side mm-hmm. is that what you want to have a law, you, you think a law that's been around since before the Civil War is still relevant? <laughs> they actually attack it. Because, because one of the arguments for attacking is because it's so old. Yes. Right. Oh, and by the way, that's not the first time I've heard that argument in the legislature against a law. It's yeah. not, not, it's not, not now the abortion one is the most, pro, you know, high profile one going on right now, mm-hmm. but I've heard that a lot in the legislature in just a couple of years I've been there when they bring up some law and they say, oh, it hasn't been changed in, yes. you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Maybe it needs some updating. Yep. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. it, that happens all the time. Right. And so that idea that just because it hasn't been modified in 40 years, mm-hmm. it's just wrong. There, there is yeah. no, there, there is no basis in reality for that argument. Mm-hmm. If they have the opportunity to change it, they will, they will probably put in some place, some sort of restrictions on it. They will probably, I don't know what that would entail because there are some people on the left that homeschool. Yeah. So they're probably not going to want to eliminate it completely because they'll, you know, tick off the, the, the hippie left <laughs> that likes to homeschool and doesn't trust the government. Rightly so, I may add. They don't trust the government. <laughs> Come on board, hippies. We can right? use your support. <laughs> well, but, and yeah, there, so you know, there's a growing population. So I don't, well, right. you and I talked about the statistics because I, I had to go to your office for help for this mm. because the DPI was not posting their current statistics on homeschoolers this past year. So Shay's office helped. That was great. Um, and she's not even a constituent yet. Well, sure I am. Not yet. Not until next year, technically. Oh, well, okay, whatever. <laughs> um, anyway, um, homeschooling went from 2% of the population to 3.25% the yeah. first full year of the pandemic mess, right? Yeah. And that went from, what, 21,000 to 32,000 kids. Wow. This past year, it only went down to 3%. So lost about 2,900 kids, and all those kids went to private school. 
almost to a person. And, and when we say so, homeschool, Tina, these aren't people doing government school at home. No, right? this is just the, under the homeschool law, filing yeah. the homeschool form. So wow. the population of homeschoolers has grown for Wisconsin. That's a huge increase in one year. So I'm and that private school also exploded at the yeah. same time. So, so I mean, there, a lot of people were looking us. for alternatives. Yeah, hopefully that protects us in some regard because they don't want to tick off their constituents, right? I mean, to some extent. Well, and and hopefully, you know, ho- hopefully you also have allies in, you know, the, the private schools as well. Yes. I mean, that, that's part of, that's part of the, the idea of the American system is you need to stick up for the, the other people who don't necessarily agree with you, but they're all choosing alternatives. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I, I see that so often that, you know, people say, we see people say that they want to, that they support choice in something Yeah. until it really comes down to, uh, until they actually face somebody who disagrees with them. And then too often it's like, well, no, you need to be doing this. It's like, well, no, I want you to have the right to pick your thing, but yes. we, we need, we do need to stick up for each other. So we need to stick up for the private schools. So the private mm-hmm. schools can stick up for us, you know, on, on healthcare freedoms. We've seen some of the same stuff. And a lot of, at one time I saw a lot of these health care freedom people who, you know, didn't want to get COVID shots or whatever else, you know, say that they wanted to have, um, you know, the choice to do that. And then, and then they found out that, you know, this candidate or the other, you know, this person got a COVID shot. So, <laughs> so that person made a choice for their own health care right. to decide that this is what was right for them. Yeah. It's like that, that's what we should be about is, is defending the rights of other people to make decisions of everybody, yourself and other people to make these decisions for themselves, right. not to try to foist our decision on everybody else as exactly. the only right choice. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. that's the problem. Like you said before, progressive Republicans, all of that, right. It's like, they want to push their own version of regulation uh, and they just oppose the Democrat regulation, but they want yeah. their own. Yeah. Right? It, too often. That's true. Yeah. Um, you know, some people have kind of bashed me because, Oh, you, you're a libertarian, not a real Republican. <laughs> it's like, well, actually, you know, Ronald Reagan once said that the heart of liberty, uh, the heart of Republicanism is actually libertarianism. Ah. He actually said it on, uh, I think it was the Johnny Carson show. Okay. You can find the clip out there. Uh, Johnny Carson said, well, you're much more libertarian these days. You're much more libertarian than, than conservative. And he's like, he goes, well, yeah, but the heart of liberty, I'm butchering his, his, yeah. his, his, his uh, quote, but he said, yeah, you know, the heart, that the heart of liberty, uh, the heart of conservatism is libertarianism. It's yeah. Yeah. leave me alone. Right. Right. And, and don't that, tread on me. <laughs> don't tread on me. Like, let, let me choose the education for my children. Let me, let me choose how I spend my money. Let me choose, you know, what religion I'm going to follow. Let me choose mm-hmm. the health care I'm going to, the health care I'm going yeah. to follow. It, it's, you know, if you are not infringing upon the rights of another individual, yes. then the government shouldn't be infringing on you. I mean, that's the basic essence of Americanism and that's what the basic essence of libertarianism is and really the heart of the conservative movement. And hopefully even the more the liberal liberal people that are in the homeschool movement will understand that this is all part of a bigger argument. Yeah, It's not just education. It is this bigger idea of who runs your life. Yes. Do you run your life or does the government run your life? And I want you to run your life. (laughs) Well, you know, Shay, this has been just a real treat. I know I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I've listened to hours worth of uh, assembly hearings and and, uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, you know, everything to prepare for this interview. So this has been a treat. But, you know, wrapping up our conversation today, I'd love to end with a call of action. So what kind of parting thoughts and encouragement would you leave our listeners with? 
get involved. I mean, really get involved. If you live in the, in the greater Green Bay, Mantuck area, listen, I could use your help because, you know, whether you want to donate to somebody or, or knock on doors from all of that is very welcome. If you don't live in my area or maybe you st- maybe after this conversation, you still think I really suck, in which case you'll find somebody else, I suppose. <laughs> but get, get involved. I mean, the impact you can have, once again, up to the state assembly level in particular is enormous. You know, I remember I remember sitting in the church that I was attending a while ago and I was looking around and I saw that the church was about 200 people. And I thought at the time, you know, if I could get these 200 people to give me two hours of their time, I could win any district in the state. I don't care how Democrat it is, because that would be 400 hours that I would have a volunteer time that that is roughly speaking, 4000 doors I could knock on. Because wow. that, that's about how many, yeah, well, yeah, close to that. So the impact is enormous because people at my level don't get much help. So when we do get help, one, we appreciate it a lot um, because, you know, a governor candidate is never going to know who you are, really. Right. But the assembly candidates know who's helping them. Yeah. And and two, it, the impact is just enormous. So, you know, <clears throat> run for either run yourself for a local board. Oh, and by the way, if, if you're looking, if you really want to look to get involved and maybe you, you don't want to, you don't want to help a campaign, maybe you want to do it yourself telling you a County board is the gravy train. That's where you want to run yeah. because it's, it's a low level race. It, there's not usually a ton of money being spent on it. Mm-hmm. There are places in, there are some places in the state. Um, one of my friends uh, ran for County board down in, I think it was Sauk County. If I remember the County correctly, mm-hmm. she was running for the first time ever. And she was unopposed. Mm -hmm. So she, all she had to do was get, I think it was a hundred signatures or something. She got on the ballot and she didn't have to knock on a door because (laughs) she was unopposed. And there were other seats in that County that didn't have a single candidate running. So all you had to do was get the signatures to get on the ballot. And if there's anything that we've seen over the last couple of years is how impactful local elected officials can be. Yeah. So I'm telling you, and county board, county board, if you, it is a great place to start if you want to run. And I've seen 18 and 19 year old kids. I want to call them kids because they're adults. Yeah. But 18 and 19 year old people run and win in these seats. I mean, it it just even if you're even if you're um, actually opposed and actually have somebody yeah. gets on the ballot, yeah. it comes down to work. It does. It's not that expensive. You put you scrape together a thousand dollars, maybe two thousand dollars. It depends on the counting because there's different size districts script a couple of script together a couple thousand dollars you can win pretty much any county board race in the state if you're willing to work hard enough there you go noah that's your role i know i know (laughs) tina that or deep pier city council we can use some good people on the deep pier city council on the east side (laughs) well you know uh jim boyd lives in my apartment complex so gotta you know now now now, uh i'm trying to think here so you live on the what what part of the northeast side uh north broadway street yeah, on the, yeah, toward Northeast, right? right? We'll have to see where the breakdown is because <laughs> because at least one of those people signed the nomination papers for my opponent. So. Oh, oh, boy, you got to get on that, Noah. I know. Well, <laughs> hey, listeners, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Uh, and, you know, of course, if you're homeschooling your children, I think you're doing God's work. And I just leave you with uh, a thought of encouragement and hope and uh, ask you tune in again to the Homeschool Loftcast next week. Mm-hmm.